Uh, as we're in Hebrews chapter 11, I want you to just go back uh, just a few verses in Hebrews chapter 10. And uh, in, you'll remember, uh, you know, as we come to Hebrews chapter 11, which has been dubbed kind of the hall of faith, uh, looking at the faith of many of the fathers and leaders that have gone before us, uh, it's important to not, you know, you know, we've been doing these, these 10 weeks so far, and now we get to Hebrews 11, and we kind of like get into something totally different and sensationalize it in a whole nother study. Thank you, Blaine, uh, about faith. Uh, we want to remember it ties in with everything else, right? Uh, these verses tie in with the verses before it and the chapters before it and the books around it and the books around those books. And they all are within the context of the whole of the scriptures. We remember that Paul, or excuse me, the apostle, whoever it might have been, Paul, Apollos, Luke, uh, Barnabas, a lot of different guys uh, nominated here to be the, the writers of this. Uh, but he uh, is writing to a group of Hebrew Christians who, uh, because of persecution uh, in Christ, uh, they've been losing their homes, they've been losing their families, they've been suffering, they've been beaten, they've suffered the loss of many things. Uh, they're considering going back to the Jewish system and religion and the elements that they could see and that were tangibly there in front of them and the, the temple and the smoke rising and the incense and the bells and the smells and all of these things. They were like, you know, why are we following this guy from Galilee? It's just been kind of a pain. It's been hurtful. Uh, our family and our community have disowned us. We've been written out of the will. Let's just go back. And this whole book is, is about don't go back. Don't go back. Uh, Jesus is better than anything that, that the Jewish religion has ever had. He's actually the fulfillment of everything that Israel has ever had. So don't go back. Don't neglect your faith. Don't depart from your faith. Don't, uh, don't be dull of hearing concerning your faith. But press in, persevere, press on. Chad taught on that last week. And, and here in Hebrews 10.35 it says... Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. This is a key verse and moving forward into Hebrews chapter 11 is this quote from Habakkuk. Habakkuk, the whole theme is that the just shall live by faith. And he's writing to the Hebrews saying, continue on in faith in Jesus Christ. Continue on in the fulfillment of all that the prophets wrote about and all of the, the symbols and the types and the shadows. They all pointed to their fulfillment in Jesus. Live by faith in him. Don't draw back. My soul has no pleasure in those that would draw back, says the Lord. But Continue on persevering, believing to the saving of the soul. Arthur Pink says that sentence from Habakkuk really forms the text of which Hebrews 11 is the sermon. You know, I've taught Hebrews 11 so many times, I honestly can't count. And uh, I just can't count at all, actually. So it's not that it's been that many times. Uh, 
But I've never gone back and looked at this, this chapter 10 Habakkuk passage in light of it. And it's so important in the context of the whole book to see what the salvation faith leads to. A, sal- a salvific faith, if you will, leads to an outworking faith. John Owen, an incredible Puritan preacher from the 1500s, said, an account here the apostle enters upon in the close of the foregoing chapter and withal declares unto them the only way and means on their part whereby they may be preserved and kept constant in their profession, notwithstanding all the evils that might befall them therein. And this is by faith alone. From their temptations, they were delivered by the doctrine of the truth. And from the opposition made unto them by faith in exercise. Now to some, that's just a whole lot of 15th century thys and these and thous. Uh, But what he's getting at is all of the tough stuff that the Hebrews were going through can be overcome and actually be used for glory in exercising the outworking of faith. The author moves from chapter 10 on into an explanation of faith. You'll see that as you just glance at verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 through 40 of chapter 11, there's all of these different examples of faith. And then in chapter 12, next week, we'll see the endurance of faith. Following that is the last warning that he has in this book concerning denying the faith. And then at the end of chapter 13, our final teaching here in a few weeks, the letter is concluded with practical exhortations and personal closing expressions. It begins, Hebrews begins like a lecture, and we'll see it morph into a letter as it ends. So, an explanation of faith, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 tells us, is everybody there, Hebrews 11, 1? It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I want you to ask yourself, as we get into this chapter, am I a man of faith? Am I a woman of faith? The Christian life is a life of faith. There's no Christian life apart from faith. We'll see that in verse 6 when we get there. There's no Christian life apart from faith. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and and yet I live, but the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Faith is the indispensable channel of salvation. The faith that we speak of here in chapter 11 is a spiritual element. And as we've learned in 1 Corinthians, the natural man can't understand the things of the Spirit. They just can't. It's it's foreign to them. It's Greek to them. And it's Roman to the Greek. I don't know, but they don't get it. The natural man cannot comprehend the dimensions of the spiritual life. They fail to comprehend it. We see that all the time in our conversations. Ebo uh, Elder was uh, held like this uh, middleweight boxing title or lightweight boxing title, and he's a believer, uh, a 
an acquaintance of mine. I consider him a friend. I'm not sure if he considers the same, but uh, we actually shared a room even at the pastor's conference this year. And uh, now he's in Tennessee. And one thing I love about Ebo, he's on, he's been on HBO in these big lightweight boxing titles of the world and all this stuff. And he preaches the gospel as his face is all swollen and he wins. And he's like, Jesus Christ came to, you know, just love this guy. He's so cool, but he's just zealous on Facebook these days. He's just like, preaching the gospel and people are coming back at him just with an uppercut of hatred you know and uh and he dodges it with you know a left hook of like truth you know but you just read these threads with him and the people he's witnessing to they just don't comprehend anything that he's saying and the other day he finally just said you know what honestly buddy it's because you are just a natural man you don't understand the things of the spirit at all a life of faith you just cannot comprehend you reject the whole notion of the christian life one man said a life without god that it becomes extraordinarily bleak and einstein said i found that men who seem to know the most are the most miserable ephesians chapter 2 tells us that it's by grace that we've been saved okay through faith Right? So it's by grace that we've been saved. It's not of works, lest any man should boast before God. It's a gift of God that we've been saved. And we rest in that grace. How do we rest in that grace? Through faith. Faith is the channel. Faith is the conduit that salvation comes through, that brings grace upon our life. So where do works come in at that point? Well, works are an expression of that faith, not a replacement of that faith. They are an expression, an outflowing of that faith. Faith is a gift from the hand of God. Faith begins with him sovereignly moving in our lives. We, we then in 1 Corinthians 12, we see that there's then a gift of faith. It's an extreme faith given to Christians in a moment when they need it. One man said, the gift of faith in 1 Corinthians 12 is a quick trust thrust. All right? Just in the moment you need it, you're going to pray for a healing. You're going to jump over there and witness to that guy. You're going to, you know, you need more faith. And we see there's a gift of faith given in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Don't act like you don't have faith or that you don't need faith. We, even the carnal man, the natural man, uses faith all the time. When he sticks his face down to a water fountain in a public area, he has faith that some kid didn't do what I did as a kid and pretend that that water spout was a mouth guard for a football game. You know, you trust that it's clean. You trust the water coming out isn't going to be poisoned. I never really did that. was tempted, though, many times. We trust the doctor with the advice that he gives us. And then when he goes in with his scalpel to remove something, uh, we we trust he's going to do it well. We trust the brake pads in our car. We trust the the pilot in the plane. We trust the plane. Some guy had a great idea to strap some rockets to a tube. And, you know, somehow it works, right? I don't know, you know, and we're just going to load with 200 people and a bunch of cargo and fly across the ocean. That's faith. We, we exercise faith all the time. The agnostic and the atheist has faith. It takes faith to believe that God doesn't exist and that he didn't create this. And then you've got to put your faith and trust in some other theory. 
Robert Watson wrote about a dialogue between an atheist and a Christian where an atheist said, I know there is no God. And the Christian replied, do you know the total truth of the entire universe? And the atheist said, no, of course not. So the Christian said, well, do you know 10% of the total truth in all the universe? No, I don't even know that. Would you say that you know 1% of the total truth in all the universe? No, I don't know that. What about 0.01% of the total truth in all the universe? I don't. I don't know that. Okay, okay, so let's assume that you know 1% of total truth in all the universe. And that there's 99% truth still out there. I'm telling you, God is there. And you just have ignored him. There is so much that the world doesn't know. We are so proud in our knowledge, especially in the information age. But we don't know anything. And so that proud individual who would say there is no God, he's the fool of Psalm 14.1. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. Because they don't know 0.01% of all total truth in all the universe. There's a description of faith. It's more, of a def- more than a definition. It's really a description of faith given to us in two parts here in verse 1. It says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. So that's the first part. It's the substance or the realization. Think of that. Realization. Realization. Or the trust of things hoped for. Substance means that which has mass and occupies space. In other words, it's real. Faith shows reality. Faith is what can be believed. The Greek word rendered substance has been translated in different versions that faith is the ground of confidence or it's the assurance or it gives the substance to. The Greek word is hypostasis and it means it brings confidence. That's what faith does. Our faith shows that God is tangible. It doesn't make God tangible. Our faith shows that God is tangible, physical, touchable, someone who can be grasped. Faith is believing the testimony of God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And then we see, secondly, it's the evidence of things not seen. Evidence means a basis for belief in something we can't see. We love law and order. We love these crime dramas, you know, where uh, they, they see a crime scene and then they go to working through the evidence and you follow along the drama and the plot till they finally figure out. It's no fun to watch those with Lindsay because at the beginning of the show, she's like, so-and-so did it and she's usually right at the end of it. So, um, but it's fun because even last night I was like, we're watching a crime drama and like, You know what happened, don't you? She's like, well, they've already said three different... Okay, anyways, she likes the evidence, all right? The basis or belief in things that you can't see, but they're there if you'll just look at them. Literally, it means faith is the confidence of things not seen. It means we can live in absolute confidence in what God has said. Even when we haven't seen the fullness of the promise fulfilled... It's believing that something is true 
just because God said it. That's evidence that it's true. We cannot see the wind, yet we feel it, and we see its effects. That's our evidence that it exists. We may not see God, but faith is just one of the many clues that he is real. One man said, you could say, faith is the bobber you put on your fishing line that sits on the top of the water. With your eyes, you can't tell what's going on under the surface. But when that bobber goes underwater, you know you hooked a fish. Faith is like the bobber. It alerts you to what's going on at the end of your line, which you can't see. The New Living Translation of this verse says, Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about the things we cannot see. Now, something amazing about faith, and it's not faith that's amazing, and we're going to see that in a sec. It's actually the object that your faith is placed on. But it's that faith allows us to have hope and trust, even in the most difficult times, even when we can't see God or touch God. Faith drives us towards him. Now, the Puritans would always explain what something wasn't in order for you to really understand what it was. So a few things that faith is not. Faith, first of all, is not a subjective religious feeling that is divorced from objective truth that God has made known. All right? It's not something that you just know inside yourself and inside your heart that contradicts everything that God has already revealed about himself for us. Faith is not an internal feeling or a strong feeling inside of me. And many people say this that don't know God at all. They're, in fact, the opposite of knowing God. They're involved in paganism. And they would just say, I've got this faith. I'm a person of faith. I have this strong faith. If I didn't have my faith, I wouldn't have made it. That's not the faith of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Secondly, faith is not the attitude of people who accept something as true apart from the evidence. In other words, a faith of the scriptures doesn't require you to take your brain out of your head and throw it away. Okay, There's very logical things about who God is and how he explains himself to us. And so blind faith is not necessary. And finally, faith is not a mental attitude that makes us believe something will happen. Kind of like the movie, What About Bob? Where he would get up every morning and his doctor told him, hey, when you get up, sit up in your bed and say this out loud in your room. Say, I believe, I believe, I believe. Wasn't that the monkeys that sang that? I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. Okay, anyways. Well, that type of attitude doesn't say in whom you believe or in what you believe. And it does matter. In the New Testament, it does matter. It's the object of faith that gives faith its significance. It's the object of faith or the grounding that faith is, is, is planted into that gives it the significant. Real, real faith is not based on our feelings, which are totally unstable all the time. Our emotions that can fluctuate in a three minute period or less. But real faith, biblical faith, is reliable because it is based upon the trustworthiness of God as he has revealed himself to us in his word. 
the African Impala, can jump to a height of over 10 feet and cover a distance in that jump of over 30 feet. Yet these magnificent creatures can be kept in an enclosure in any zoo with a three-foot-high wall. The thing is, these animals don't jump if they can't see where their feet will fall. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, we don't have to be like the Impalas. Because God has told us, he's spoken to us where our feet will fall. He's telling us as the Impalas, hey, over that fence, there's just solid ground, man. Take the jump. Take the jump. And we're like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't jump over there because I can't see. I can't, a three-foot wall stopping me, man. It's stopping me. I can jump 10 feet and 30 feet, but I'm not going to do it. You know? and, and the Lord's like, do it. Take the jump. Romans 8, 24 and 25 says, we are saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Does the natural man understand that? Does the carnal man understand that? The spiritual man understands it. Now, we're not going to go to verse 2 tonight. <laughs> we will, but not right now. We're going to go to verse 3. We're going to do something really tricky, and we're going to jump a verse like an impala, okay? 10 by 30, right there. Verse 3 says, By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So, by faith, by this evidence, by this confidence, by this realization, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. This, world, word, this word world, worlds, worlds, is ages, it's actually the word eons. So by faith we understand that all the eons were framed by the word of God. All the ages, all of time. And it takes faith to understand that. Man, in this decade, in this year, we just live among so many people that are hostile to the idea of a creator. And it takes faith to believe in this creator. Just like they have faith to believe in evolution. To understand that life never arises from anything but life. And the scientists, we get that, but then they get to the the very beginning, and they don't know what to do. They freeze. They're in total gridlock. There must have been something that formed them. And Christians, we have faith seeking understanding this, and we have an explanation for us by somebody who was there and has proved that he was there through everything radical about what the Holy Scriptures are in about a 40-point sermon that would prove that the one who was there has the right to tell us what happened when he was there. Sorry if that was confusing. Kind of was to me too, but I think you get it. <laughs> By faith and our tangible grasp on the ever real God, we understand that the world and that planets and that the universe were created by God so that everything we see was not made by something else that we see evolving into what we see now. Now, we're not talking macroevolution here and microevolution. You know, we, there's, there's understanding that there's within species, there's just changes that happen over time. But this macroevolution where from the goo to the zoo to you, you know, no disrespect, but it's just, it's, it's bogus. It's bogus. And so everything that we see was, had intelligent design behind it. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jesus. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus himself, Colossians chapter 1, John chapter 1, he was the one that created 
what we see now. By Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. John 1, 3, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. 2 Peter 3, 5, for this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Romans 1.20 says, since the beginning of the world, his invisible attributes, his character, his qualities have been clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Everybody knows in their heart of hearts, deep down in there, that they were created by God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If one can't believe that God created the heavens and the earth and that in six days, they will have a really difficult time believing the rest of scripture and the miraculous workings of God. Let me tell you this. When science may seem to point to something else, we still believe the word of God over science. The word of God trumps science. Knowing that when all is said and done, the scriptures will be found to be true. I love what A.W. Pink said, and this, you know, I've been studying him in Hebrews, but I, I read of him today in his Genesis gleanings. Actually, his book's called Gleanings in Genesis. And he wrote this, man, get ready, get ready for this. Are you ready? This is awesome. A.W. Pink in Gleanings on Genesis. The faith of the Christian rests not in the wisdom of man, nor does it stand in any need of buttressing from scientific salvos. The faith of the Christian rests upon the impregnable rock of the Holy Scriptures, and we need nothing more. Pause. Do you believe that? You've got to believe that. If you're a Christian, your hope has got to rest there. You've got to trust that, or you are going to get the snot Sucked out of here, whatever it is. It's really bad. It has to do with that. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be gross. That the word of God is all sufficient in and of itself to explain. He says, he continues, too often Christian apologists desert their proper ground. For instance, one of the ancient tablets of Assyria is deciphered. And that is, then it is triumphantly announced that some statements found in the historical portions of the Old Testament have been confirmed. But that is only a turning of things upside down again. The word of God needs no confirming. If the writing upon the Assyrian tablet agrees with what was recorded in Scripture, that confirms the historical accuracy of the Assyrian tablet. If it disagrees, then it is proof, proof positive that the Assyrian writer was at fault. In like manner, if the teachings of science square with scripture, that goes to show the former are correct. If they conflict, that proves the postulates of science are false. The man of the world and the pseudoscientist may sneer at our logic, but that only demonstrates the truth of God's word and declares, which declares that the natural man receives nothing of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. It takes more faith to believe in nothing than to believe in a creator God. 
When somebody comes to terms with that, they realize that this creator God has creator rights over me and can make demands upon me and can make commands upon me. And I have failed those commands, which means I need to ask for forgiveness. And I am not going to do that. So I'm going to stiffen my neck and harden my heart and put my shoulder into that and say, nope, I'm going the other way in absolute rebellion. And that's what we see today. Back to verse 2, and there's a reason why. Verse 2 says, For by it the elders obtain a good testimony. And the rest of the chapter is all about the elders and their great testimony by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 has been commonly titled the Hall of Faith. In it, the heroes of the faith who do the unthinkable are commemorated and memorialized. Now, it's very dangerous to start worshiping these men and these women. We need to understand these guys are only heroes because they had their eyes on the hero. They had their eyes on the captain of salvation, Jesus Christ. And every time you see a hero in the scripture, that guy or that gal, a heroine, I suppose she's called. That's also a very bad drug. Okay, anyways, uh, they are just pointing to Jesus. Every time that you see a failure or a, or a conundrum, that would be based upon our sinfulness and our failures and the fallen condition of men. But we do have these men and these women who are champions and they are conquerors. They are brave men and women. They are leaders and they are heroes, not in and of themselves, not because they had this incredible gene pool that they came out of, but because they had their eyes fixed on the hero of the faith. The whole host of the Old Testament saints are recorded in this chapter for their faith in God, despite great hardship, persecution, pain, even death. These examples of faith are surely encouraging to this Hebrew group of people who were in need of perseverance in the face of struggles and hardship and temptation. In the same manner that one would walk through the Baseball Hall of Fame, and see the pictures, and look at the trophies, and hear the stories of amazing athletes who did awe-inspiring feats. They might be inspired to become the next Hall of Fame pitcher or hitter. So does one walk through Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith, and hear the stories of these heroes inspiring us to become the next generations, keeping our eyes on the prize, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who will in turn inspire us to be this next generation, and so on and so forth. By faith, the forerunners of the faith lived lives that made them champions. Martin Luther said, The true living faith, which the Holy Spirit instills into the heart, simply cannot be idle. And that's what we see about Hebrews chapter 11. The Holy Spirit working in these men and women to act upon the things they knew about God. In chapter 12, verse 1 of this very book, we see that, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So we should lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnared us and run with endurance the race that's been set before us. Who's this cloud? It's speaking of a, of a coliseum, a cloud of witnesses. It's the men and women who've gone before us who've said, you know what, I've been where you're at. I've been in that hard place. I've been in that terrifying. Get your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame, endured the cross, Get your eyes on him. And they're cheering us and they're chanting us on. And here we read just some of these people in that great Colosseum. These people heard the story of God. They trusted the promises of God. And they lived in the light of that promise. Real quickly, I want to give you three things that are incorporated into faith 
Number one, knowledge. Knowledge. Faith is dependent on what is known about God. The knowledge of God gives us the basis for our certainty. Is what is known about God shown him to be trustworthy? The things that we know about God, it causes us to rest in him and to trust in him, right? Each one of these people knew something about God, who he was, and it caused them to rest in him. Knowledge must be followed up by what's called assent, and assent just means agreement. Okay, so I know something about God, and I agree about what this is about God. Okay, um, God says it, I believe it, that settles it, basically. <laughs> or really, it could just be simmered down to God says it, that settles it. But we'll throw that I believe it part in there as well. And the third thing about faith is that it involves trust. Okay, knowing these things about God, agreeing with these things about God. Yes, that is who he is. And now I'm going to trust in him. That means I'm going to act in him. I'm going to act upon the things that he's promised. The things that he said are going to happen. Faith is a a decisive act and a sustained attitude. In verses 4 through 40, we have all of these examples of faith throughout History. Now, I want you to write this and remember this and whatever it is you need to do to think this as we go through it. The, an amazing thing about chapter 11 is that we see all of these individuals through the lens of the cross. We're reading about them now in the New Testament. That means we're not seeing any of their faults, any of their blunders, any of their dreadful, heinous sins. It's encouraging to me because God sees me through the lens of the cross through his son's perfection and his son's punishment. He doesn't see my screw-ups, but rather my acts of faith that I did in him, resting in him, believing upon him and upon his name. In 2 Peter, Peter actually calls Lot righteous Lot. Do you know anything about Lot? Have you read Genesis? Hey, through the lens of the cross, he is righteous Lot. So let's get to it. This is going to be quick. We've got like another 36 verses to go through tonight, but it's a lot of just exciting stories of people trusting in the God of the Bible. We start out with Abel in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. So you can read about this account in Genesis 4, verses 1 through 15. Why did God like Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? Does he like ranchers more than he likes farmers? I believe that it was clear at this time that Cain and Abel's lives knew that God required them to shed the blood of an animal for their sins to be forgiven. Adam and Eve had sinned, and as soon as they were found out, God had to kill an animal to make them clothes, covering them, covering over their sin and over their shame. Abel had killed the animals. He prepared these animals and brought them to the Lord. Cain cut the vegetables, which do not provide for a sacrifice, and they were brought to the Lord. We've learned so far in the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, and without the shedding of blood, there's no entrance into the presence of the Lord. That chapter in Genesis chapter 4 says that the process of time came to pass when Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. 
And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desires for you, but you should rule over it. So we see that his sacrifice was not good. His sacrifice was not well. If you do well, it will be accepted. If you do not do well, then sin lies at your door. And certainly it did in Cain's life. In verses 6 and 7, we're just read, God graciously tries to reason with Cain and warn him not to do evil. But while Cain was talking with his brother, he killed him. Those who are disobedient in their approach to God and coming to him in their own methods, it's as old as Genesis chapter 4. And that's what the Hebrews were being tempted to fall back towards. Self-motivated, self-provoked, self-encouraged righteousness. Self-provided righteousness, which as we know through the whole of scripture, will never measure up, will never justify a sinner. 1 John three twelve says, Cain was of the wicked one, he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Another thought on Abel's offerings is that Abel offered only his best before God. Not only the quality of his offering, but also the sincerity by which he gave it to God. He offered it to God with a pure heart, and he offered the best gift. Now, hunters, ranchers, I mean, we're Oregon men, right? We've put beasts of burden down, okay? <laughs> hmm, not me, I mean, maybe some of you, but okay. If you're a hunter, you've done that. You've, you've killed an animal. Uh, we recently found a, a little lizard in our backyard. Now, we've got lizards in our backyard, but we had one run into our back door the other day, and it was like teeny, teeny, tiny. It was so cute. And I've never been a lizard guy or a reptile guy. Somehow, I'm like touching this thing and trying to catch it. We catch it for our kids. Can't find anything to feed it. I'm killing house flies. I'm putting moths in there this big. Eat that, little guy, you know. It's like, get it away. You know, and, and, and we just notice over two days, you know, Oscar is getting weak. He's like... All right, so today we had to like take him and the kids walked him out and set him down out by the pool where we found him and we're like, go on, little guy, just go, you know. And he looked back and we're like, do it, get out, okay, get out of here. But it was sad because Lainey was like, Oscar might die. I'm like, well, he hasn't eaten in three days, you know. He'd kill me, you know, and, and he just kind of like crawls out of there, you know. I hope he's found something to eat. But it was so sad that this little dude could die. That's a big deal. I mean, is that, you guys aren't sad? That's sad. When it says that Cain went and got his animals and he killed them, shed blood and brought their fat to the Lord, it's like, oh, you know, it's a bummer. It's costly. There's life that's in the blood. Now you got Abel out there, or Cain who's out there, I don't know who I said before, Cain, is out there and he's like, oh, I got a carrot today. I got, oh, oh, here you go, Lord. You know, I'll wash it off a little bit for you. A difference, okay? There was a difference in that. There was a quality in Abel's offering. And he offered it to the Lord with a pure heart. Psalm 30, uh, 24 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? Who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
True faith, like Abel, will offer our very best, not the residual effects. All that I am, all that I can be, the purest gift to the Lord. I want the best of my time to be the Lord's. And yet on a Saturday night, we stay up till 3 a.m. And then we drudge in here 40 minutes late for church and we fall asleep during the message. And that's what we give the Lord during the week. You know, you know, or we're so good and diligent about two or three or four times exercising every week. Those are the things that are important to us. But we give the Lord the last, the fragments of our time, which is barely anything. Yesterday, I was reading D.L. Moody on spiritual leadership. And while in England, he heard British evangelist Henry Varley say that the world has yet to see what God will do with and, and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Moody thought to himself, he said, a man. He did not say a great man, nor a learned man, nor a rich man, nor a wise man, nor an eloquent man, nor a smart man, but simply a man. I am a man. And it lies with the man himself, whether he will or will not make that entire and full consecration. I will try to my uttermost to be that man. And as core groups have gotten started, and we've been looking at the cost of discipleship, I have just been pleading with the Lord, Lord, work in me that man, move in me to be that man, fully and wholly consecrated to you. Abel, it appears, was that man. And even though he's dead, he still speaks. That's freaky deaky, okay? He's talking. I hear dead people. In Hebrews, the people were suffering. Many of them were dying. There was an encouragement here that if they would remain with Christ, though they would die, their testimony would go on. Though they would be killed, you can't kill the testimony that we've approached God in a way that has been prescribed as able. Jesus himself. What are we hearing here? Okay. Just didn't know. Didn't know if I hadn't eaten enough. Two hot dogs wasn't enough coming over here. Inhaled those things. Matthew 23, 35, Jesus uses Abel as an example. It says to the rebuke to the Pharisees that the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah or Berechiah, you murdered them. It's the same heart that was in Cain that was in Abel. Moving right along, verses 5 and 6, we have Enoch, who's a picture of endurance. Verse 5, is that someone from our churches, Harley? Is Dan here? He's like, what's up? Okay, hopefully, that'd be great. Why don't you go out there and tell him to come in? <laughs> By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. You can read about him in Genesis 5.21. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters he ended up being 365 years old and he walked with the Lord and then he was not for God had taken him, Genesis says. Enoch, a man that walked with God, had a deep relationship with God for way over 300 years during a time that it was not easy to walk with God. Enoch was a contemporary of, of Noah and we read of Noah's day, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth that every intent and thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man to live on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So Enoch, kind of maybe on the other end of the Pangea or whatever it was called, uh, he lived in a tough time and yet he endeavored to live a life well-pleasing to the Lord. 
He was raptured. Before he was taken, he was a good witness. Notice, this was before he was taken, that he walked with the Lord. Enoch had a faith that showed that God was the most important thing in his life. Faith makes a man walking with God the most important thing in his life. That's what faith does. Verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You must come to the Lord through resting in what he's done through his son Jesus Christ. You must. There's no other way. You must do two things in your faith. Believe that God is and believe that he's a rewarder of those who steadily, perseveringly call out and and follow him. Verse 7, moving right along, we have Noah who walked in faith even when he was alone. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah is a classic example of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Noah was 500 years old when the Lord told him to build the ark. It took him 100 years to build the ark. He was divinely warned of things not seen. You've got to understand that the earth had never seen rain. And Noah was supposed to share with the world that rain was coming and that they needed to get on this boat and be saved from the flood. And all of those responses against him on Facebook were, dude, scientifically a flood can never happen because it's never rained on the earth. And they put their fingers in their ears. And so there goes Noah out there with perhaps some of his buddies, his family, and the size of the ark that he built was probably 450 to 520 feet long, just a little smaller than than, uh, three quarters the length of the Titanic, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Bill Cosby does a great skit on what was happening here, uh, perhaps a little lacking in the reverence side, but, uh, but he, he just shows that Noah's out there hammering and dinking around on the ark, and his neighbor comes out and says, what's that? And Noah says, an ark. A what? An ark. Can you get it out of my driveway? <laughs> what's coming? Rain. What's rain? I've never heard about this. Man, talk about extreme faith on Noah's part. He had the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of not thing. These people wish they'd listen to Noah. He's assigned to the Hebrews of this book and to us in, in this land that we can walk with the Lord even when no one else is walking and obeying, even when it just seems ludicrous to worldly imagination. Imagine the scorning that Noah went through. By which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Romans 3.22 says the righteousness of God, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. Believing. Believing the word of God. Believing. This is ludicrous, but God says it. God says it. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Not what my closest friend or my spouse says. What God says matters. Now, Noah is living in this type of the gospel. He has the ark that he's building, which is a type of Christ. The means of salvation. You have Noah, who's the type of evangelical Christian preaching the good news that there's salvation from the flood, the wrath of God. And you have the perishing, those who will not believe in the one way 
to escape from wrath. In verses 8 through 19, we have Abraham and Sarah who leave everything that represents security in their life. We have these heroes from patriarchal society. By faith, verse 8 says, Abraham obeyed. That's something that shows that you love the Lord, is that you obey. When he's called to go out of the place that he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. 75-year-old Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees. He was a successful man with a huge family. And one day the Lord tells Abraham to take his wife and his possessions and to get out of Ur. He wasn't sure where they were going, how far they were going, how long it would take to get there. But that God was going to give him an inheritance and a land and make him a great nation through his line. Abraham showed great faith by being obedient, by going. Even though he didn't know where he was going, even though it meant leaving all that he'd worked so hard to achieve in 75 years. Verse 9 says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. There were many others living in Canaan when Abraham got there. He dwelt in tents as if a foreign land had now become his home. Everyone in his family now lived in tents and canopies. There were no palaces awaiting him in his newfound inheritance land. There were no permanent buildings there for him. What kind of an inheritance is this? Oh, to him, it was an inheritance. Because of verse 10, because he waited for the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, Abraham was stoked about his earthly inheritance and having a nation come from his loins. But Abraham had a heavenly mindset ultimately waiting for the new Jerusalem that would dwell, perhaps even on this earth. couple opinions. Maybe there's a new heaven and a new earth, or that God takes this one and makes it a new heaven or a new earth. That he would dwell in it for eternity. And again, an encouragement to the Hebrews had lost their homes and were trying to persevere in the midst of hard times. They were living in tents like strangers in a foreign land. But they were reminded of their heavenly home that they'll one day have if they do not lose heart. Chapter 13, verse 14 of Hebrews says, Here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Verse 11, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Because she judged him faithful who had promised. She had the strength mustered to have a child when she was 90 years old. That just don't happen anymore. Okay? That didn't happen then either. That's why it was a miracle. Because Sarah was seen through the lens of the cross in Hebrews 11, nothing is mentioned of Sarah growing impatient with the promise that she would bear a child. So she urges her husband to go into her handmaiden, her servant Hagar, to make a son whom later on she'll despise and kick her out of the home. Okay, it's not mentioned I probably shouldn't have, but... Praise God, when the Lord looks at us through the lens of the cross, he doesn't see all of our failures and misgivings. Because Sarah is seen through the lens of the cross, nothing is mentioned of Sarah laughing at the Lord's promises. When she laughs, when God and perhaps even Jesus himself is standing outside her tent saying, you will conceive and bear a son, and she giggles. Shall I know pleasure in my old age? And the angel of the Lord says, Sarah, why did you laugh? And she goes, I didn't laugh. And he goes, oh, but you did laugh. (laughs) I think it's hilarious, sorry. 
And yet Sarah conceived and bore a son when she was 90, Abraham being 100 years old. Why is Sarah written about here? Because she judged him faithful who had promise. Verse 12, therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky and multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Talk about a compliment. Hey, Abraham, you're as good as dead. I'll give you a son. Romans chapter 4 is a great commentary on this. Don't have time to read it. Homework, will you read it? Go home tonight before you go to bed. Husbands, read it to your wives. Wives, read it to your husbands. Read it to yourself. All that good stuff. Romans 4. But let me just read verses 23 through 25. It's a snippet of it. All of this was written not for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead. Maybe that wasn't the highlight I should have chosen, but it was good. Verse 13, you figure if you highlight it, it's got to be good, right? Verse 13 says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. These men and women looked ahead to the fulfillment of these things, to Jesus and to a heavenly city not made with hands, to the fulfillment of the promises, instead of looking to the shadow of the promise. Those things always disappoint. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They were just sojourners. All throughout the scriptures, we're told that we are just passing through. This world is not our home. Verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they'd called to mind that country from which they'd come out of, they would have opportunity to return. They were confessing they were just passing through. So they were destined for a, a homeland someday. So God is not ashamed to be called the God of these people who take his promises and believe in them. If they wanted to, they could have just gone back to Ur, picked up where they had left off, said, that was lame, we dwelt in tents the whole time. But they were looking to the better thing, the heavenly thing. Verse 16, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The country they're seeking wasn't the land of Canaan, but the new Jerusalem, Henry Morrison was a missionary in Africa. When he finally came back to America, he was on the same ship as Teddy Roosevelt, who was coming back from a safari. When they reached the home harbor, there was a great celebration and marching bands and cheering for Teddy Roosevelt. But Henry got off the ship all alone and in quiet. As he was beginning to get discouraged, he felt the Lord speak to him. Henry, you're not home yet. The marching bands will be playing when we go and see our maker and therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, because he has prepared a city for them. Much to say, not much time. Verses 17 through 19 show Abraham's faith in offering up Isaac. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So, Abe knew God's promises to make a nation from his loins. Now God's asking him to kill his sons. What's up with that? Abram went ahead and was obedient to God, knowing that either God would provide another sacrifice or else raise his son from the dead. Abraham didn't have any scriptures to read about the resurrection. He didn't know of Jesus' resurrection. He'd never been told of these things. They never happened before, but he knew that God could do it. In fact, he did do it 
figuratively, because Isaac was as good as dead when he was there lying on the altar. And this just reminds us in James 2.20, you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. Our faith will always have the outworking of obedience to the Lord and doing what he calls. And it shows that we are justified. It shows that we're justified. What are the works in your life? Are there fruits coming out of you that show that you are indeed a son of Abraham, a child of Abraham, that you have believed on God and it was accounted to you for righteousness. And then you go out and you slaughter your son if you're told to. We have Isaac in verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Isaac believed that Esau wouldn't kill Jacob after their family feud, but also that the line of Abraham would go on. There was a lot of pressure going back on his original blessing. Cancel that out, Jacob. Cancel that out, Esau. I was blind. I didn't know the fur was fake. Okay, no, really, Esau, here's your blessing. Jacob, here's your blessing. A lot of pressure to go back on his original blessing, but he held firm. In verse 21, Jacob, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top, top of his staff. Takes a lot of faith to lean on a staff. A lot of government employees. Okay, never mind, we won't go there. Um, Jacob, I worked for the government for a while, so I can make that joke. This is incredible. Jacob was blessing Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And as he goes to bless the sons, he couldn't see well. And here's Ephraim and Manasseh, Manasseh being the older one. At his right, or at his, uh, let's see, what was it? He was at his right hand. Oh yeah, so it was at his right hand. Manasseh was there. And here's what, here's what Jacob does. <laughs> and he blesses the younger brother. Same thing that he kind of got going for him in his little, okay. Well, he blesses the younger. The Lord called him to do that. And he says, no, the Lord's telling me to do this. Ephraim is going to be greater than the other brother, Manasseh. And he continued with that promise. Jacob blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. Even when Joseph got angry and protested, Jacob resisted the pressure that was coming from his family member he loved most to stick with tradition. And the Hebrews needed to know that no matter how deep the traditions went, they needed to stand firm in the truth. Verse 22, Joseph is, is an example from Genesis 50. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. Joseph knew by faith that the children of Israel would not be staying in Egypt forever, and he reminded them to take his bones with them when he left. It wasn't for 400 years that those bones finally made their way back into the land of Canaan. 440 years, technically, I believe it is. In Genesis 50, 24, you read of that. Joseph knew all about the glory of Egypt, and he didn't want anything to do with Egypt. He didn't even want his dead bones to stay in Egypt. That's how highly Joseph esteemed God's promise to his great-grandfather, Abraham. 
Verse 23, we have Moses' parents in this Exodus history account. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. To the Hebrews, they take away the application, hey guys, you come from a long line of people who stayed strong even in the midst of facing death. So stay strong. Don't depart from the faith. Verses 24 through 29 speak of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. It ended up costing Moses everything to be on the right side with God's people and brought up in a life of turmoil here on the earth. Verse 26 tells us he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Have you thought of that? Being beat up and chewed up and spit out with Jesus is greater riches than anything the richest country and being a prince and royalty in that country could ever give us. He was reviled because of this. He made his decisions not based on what was easy now, but what affected eternity. He had his eyes on the prize. He looked to the reward, verse 26. Verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith he put the blood on the doorpost, believing that it would protect them from the angel of death. Why? That seems ludicrous. An angel's coming, slaughtering everybody. Put some blood on the door. Cricket, cricket, cricket. God said to do it. Put some blood on the door. And everyone who did so was spared. By faith, verse 29, they passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Verses 30 and 31, we have Joshua and Rahab in the conquest history account. In verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. It takes a lot of faith to base the success of a military, military conquest simply on walking around a wall without saying anything or making any threats or shooting anything at the wall. But Joshua was obedient and the Lord did great things. The commander of the Lord's army made a good strate strategic plan in the battle. Verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she'd received the spies in peace. Here we have a Gentile, we have a harlot, we have an Ammonite, we have someone who gave birth to Boaz, we have Jesus coming in her genealogy. In the midst of idolatry, pagan worship, and harlotry, God reached out to her because she trusted in him. Verse 32 through 40 shows the remainder of history. What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. The author is starting to realize that he's running out of time and paper to list off all of these amazing heroes of the faith. It's kind of like when John was finishing up his gospel. He says, there's many things to tell about what Jesus did, which are written one by one. I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. There would never be enough time to tell the amazing men and women in faith as they had their eyes on the champion. They... Mention Gideon here, where the Midianites are oppressing the children of Israel, and God uses Gideon, even though he was weakest in his father's house. The angel of the Lord said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. 
And he, with his eventual 300 men, went out and destroyed, actually it was the Lord who destroyed, the Midianites who were as the sand as the seashore. You have Barak from Judges 4, heads the council of Deborah, <coughs> uh, heads the council of Deborah and takes 10,000 troops to attack Jabin's army of 900 chariots. You have Samson, who was a mighty man of valor, killing a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. David, the classic story of David and Goliath, where David would say, let's see if I can pick it out here. What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then after he's reproached by his brothers, he goes out anyways without the armor and stands before a mocking Goliath. And he says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the army of the Lord God of Israel, the God of the Lord of hosts in whom you have defiled Prepare to die, basically, is what he says. And then he ends up hitting him with a rock in the head, taking his own sword, and chopping his head off. All right? That's a guy who had trust, faith, and rested in what his God would do. Samuel himself was a hero. Not only a prophet, he was a hero in the military conquest in 1 Samuel 7. He was also a prophet who was not afraid to speak the truth to a king. Verses 32 through 40, we read of these prophets And you can always go back to the kings. You can read of Elijah. You can read of Daniel. Who through faith these men subdued kingdoms, verse 33 tells us, worked righteousnesses, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. David, or excuse me, Samson stopped the mouth of a lion. David stopped the mouths of lions. Daniel stopped the mouths of lions. When he said, my God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I've done no wrong before you. Verse 34, these men and women of faith quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the army of the aliens. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were challenged to bow the knee to a false god in the plains in the valley of Dura. And they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Radical faith, standing in the face of persecution. These are men and women who've escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness, they were made strong. Gideon was used as the weakest in his father's house for God's glory with a tiny little army. David's small size glorified God when he defeated Goliath. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 tells us that it's so that God would be glorified and no, no flesh would glory in his presence. These are men and women who became valiant in battle. 2 Samuel 23 lists David's mighty men of valor. Verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Mary and Martha received Lazarus from the dead. The ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum had his daughter rise from the dead. You have the the testimony of Elijah and Elisha and the women that they ministered to having their sons risen from the dead. 
They were placed in stockades like Jeremiah the prophet, put in chains like Paul and Silas. Verse 36, still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. Even today, we have men and women all over the world who are suffering and being scourged and beaten up for the name of Christ. And it was so cool today to see a picture of Saeed on Facebook. And he had this hat on, you know, that he got from like a Christian bookstore. And it just said courageous over the front. And it had these verses from the book of John underneath. And you're just like, man, you're a Hebrews 11 guy, Saeed. Praise God for you. Keep your eye on Jesus. You just pray for him. And... Um, Verse 36, others had trial of mocking, scourgings, chains of imprisonment. 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. These are people that were completely wanting, completely lacking, hiding in caves like Elijah. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 tells of just, you know, his testimony is pretty much Hebrews 11. Verse 38, these are people of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. world is not worthy to be a stage for people like this to live out their suffering. And they are just men and women who followed Jesus. 39 through 40 here, we're wrapping it up. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. All these amazing heroes of the faith were not made perfect apart from the New Testament. Church, we get to be a part of this. Just as there's a ministry these days called Acts 29, there's only 28 chapters of Acts. Acts 29 says, hey, we are part of the continuation of the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit is moving in the lives of the church. We're the continuation of that book. We are Matthew 28, chapter, actually Matthew chapter 29 now because we're living out the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. That's us. That's us. We're living this. Man, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to keep ourselves just in surrender to the power that he gives us in obedience and opening up our mouths to tell people the good news of the gospel, to be part of this Hebrews 11 crowd. God looks at us today and he either sees faith or the absence of faith. Does it matter? Yes, it matters. But without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.